Hello, and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Ben Lawrence, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he's here to talk with us about collective action. Ben Lawrence, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So I take it that by collective action, we mean something that a group of people does rather than something that an individual person does. I guess probably some philosophers have doubted that there is such a thing as a collective action. You know, you might think that there's just such a thing as an action performed by an individual. But So do you think that groups of people can do things? Certainly. I mean, I think they obviously can do things. I mean, we regularly and without pause can join plural subjects with verbs of action. Um, we have no problem doing this. I think that it's true that there are certain sort of disturbing features in our thoughts, certain intellectual pressures we're under, which can lead us to ask how such a thing as so much as possible. And it can lead us to want to maybe not deny that groups of people can act together as a group, but to try to sort of analyze this fact away and sort of tame it. So to try to provide an analysis on which it's analyzed in terms of a whole bunch of different things, each of which can be understood purely in sort of individualistic or solitary terms. I think this is a mistake. I think that when we do that, we lose out on what's distinctive and interesting and important about collective action. So I guess the idea there would be something like, you know, I don't know, five people are building a wall. And maybe the thought would be something like, well, we can just understand what it is for five people to build a wall solely in terms of what each of the individuals are doing. All it is is a bunch of individual people laying bricks. I mean, maybe I could say something about what, what sort of pressures lead people to want to analyze this phenomenon away. And that might give people a sense of um, some ways in which people do doubt the reality of collective action. So I think there are various sources that account for the pressure to sort of do away in our thinking with this. One, I think, just comes from economics and the sort of reasoning about markets that economists do and the sort of bleed over of that into the social sciences and popular consciousness. But I think another source, a distinctively philosophical source, is an element of psychologism. And by that I mean a certain kind of story about how solitary action happens on which the way you understand what it is for a solitary action to happen is you treat it as a, a kind of process in the world that is caused by the psychological states of individual agents. So you have a picture where the it's a very intuitive where the mind is a kind of repository for sort of beliefs and desires and that you understand what a solitary action is by viewing it as a kind of event that is caused in the right way by those elements in the mind. So, I mean, if you start with this picture, which I think is actually a, a bad picture of solitary action, but it's a very intuitive one. And if you start with that, the collective action will seem on the face of it puzzling because you will be thinking that the analogous thing to say would be that there is a group mind in which various mental attitudes are housed, which in cases of acting together, cause the individual agents to do the things they do. And there's a sort of thought that that's, 
there's something kind of spooky or strange about that. And I mean, there are various ways we could try to characterize that, but it, it just, it seems kind of weird to think that when we do something as simple as build a wall together, that there is sort of hovering behind that a sort of group mind with mental states that is causing what the individual people are doing. And so I think this kind of psychologism lends itself to a kind of skepticism. Most theorists who theorize about collective action then straight away dismissing this sort of hive mind view uh, then try to provide an analysis in terms of the psychological states in, that hold in individuals and how they have to be causally interrelated to bring about something as simple as a wall being built. So the problem seems to be that if I'm inclined to make sense of individual action in terms of the idea of me having certain psychological states, uh, various kinds of desires for things, forming various kinds of intentions... If I'm inclined to think of individual action in those terms, then it looks like there would have to be a corresponding kind of mind, a corresponding set of states on the part of a group that would explain their acting together. It's like for us to build a wall, somehow our mind has to form the intention to do so or something like that. And that, that seems weird. And so people have come up with these alternative accounts of what's going on in terms of the relationship between the individual's brain that, states. That's exactly right. Yes. So you want to reject those kinds of accounts. There are a couple of interesting examples that you draw on that might be useful to get a clear sense of where you think the problems lie. So what about if I wanted to avoid those kinds of analyses that you do? That's to say that have all these complicated relations between different people's psychological states. But I just said, well, look, what it is for a group of people to be building a wall is that someone's laying the bricks down, someone's laying cement on top of them, someone else is laying more bricks, that there's just a set of actions that are going on and that altogether that makes a group action. Is there a problem with that kind of picture? I mean, it seems like you yeah. think there is. Yes, I do. I do think there is a problem. I think the problem comes from the fact that as far as you said in your description, and it seemed like you were being very careful to say very little, there was no relationship between the different actions that the people were engaging in and the total action that was being performed by the group. So, I mean, it would be very fanciful, but if we could imagine through some kind of elaborate ruse that, you know, each person didn't even know that anyone else was doing the other things, and we imagine them each doing their own thing, I think it would be very strange to think that together they were building a wall when none of them had any idea that that's what they're doing and when none of their actions were really related to that end. So I, I do think that you haven't yet said enough to have a case of genuine collective action. There's a case that you raise of something that happens with a Swedish diplomat that seems like a particularly clear case of that. I mean, I wonder if yes. you could describe that. Sure. I, I try to give two contrasting scenarios where, you know, sort of looked at from the outside, individuals all do the same thing. But yet, in one case, we don't have a case of acting together, but in the other case, we do. And I, I try to use that as a jumping off point for explaining what, what's distinctive about collective action. So case one is a case of genuine collective action. So two people arrive at a party and they want to get a message to the Swedish diplomat. The Swedish diplomat is talking to another fellow. So 
one of the agents moves to engage the person the diplomat's talking to to distract him so that the other one can draw off the Swedish diplomat to deliver the message. There, after that all has happened, we will say, you know, they did it together. That's something that was a genuine case of collective action. In the second variant, though, imagine that two people arrive independently at a party where the Swedish diplomat is talking to someone, and one of them wants to get a message to the diplomat, but the other doesn't know anything about that, and the other one engages the person the diplomat is talking to for independent reasons, drawing him off from a conversation with the diplomat, and the other one takes that opportunity, seizes that opportunity to um, deliver a message in private to the diplomat, although all the same things happened. In this case, we don't have a case of them doing something together. Rather, we have a case of one agent just exploiting the actions of another agent as the kind of circumstances against which he deliberates. And that's a very different relationship between agents than a case where people are genuinely acting together. So on the one hand, we don't want to say, we don't want to say that there's nothing more to people doing things together than individual people doing two things simultaneously. And, you know, there's mm -hmm. nothing more to it than that, because that would fail to capture the distinction you just mentioned between two people doing two different things that accidentally happen to interact versus two people working together on the same thing. So on the one hand, we don't want to take that route. But on the other hand, it looks like if we go too far down this psychologistic route, we're going to be committed to the existence of something like a group mind, like a third thinking and desiring and reasoning entity underlying or uh, emergent out of the two individual minds or something. And that's going to sound spooky and weird. Yes. I mean, I don't think that there's... I mean, there will no doubt be alternatives that avoid the group mind, but I, I think that all those alternatives also will do away with what's interesting about collective action and so miss out on it. So yes, if you were wed to the psychologistic picture and you really wanted to say something new and different is happening here, then you would have to distinguish those two cases in terms of a kind of group mind, and that seems wrongheaded. Just to clarify about psychologism, mm -hmm. what is it exactly that you're objecting to? So I mean, presumably you want to hold on to the idea that things we do intentionally, actions performed intentionally, are they result as the process of an individual reasoning about what to do, what, what should I do when. So what is it exactly that you want to deny? Um, what is the psychologistic picture that you're objecting to? Well, I'm, I'm afraid that this may get a little uh, technical or, or philosophical, but let me try to say. So I'm in general, in the philosophy of action, including solitary action, what I am opposed to here would be a story on which we have a, a picture of certain psychological states. That's one element of the story. Then another element of the story is some pre-given sense of cause, where by cause we mean the same kind of cause that happens when one rock bumps into another rock or when a bridge collapses because of the structural dispositions of it over time. So we start with the idea of what's in somebody's head, a pre-given notion of cause, and then try to treat an event, an action, intentional action, as just an event that is, in this pre-given sense, caused by the right contents of someone's mind. The approach that seems more promising to me doesn't start by taking really anything for granted in that way, because it's open to the possibility that 
intentional actions, that human actions might be forms of processes that are structured by a kind of causality that's different than the kind of causality that we find in bridges falling down and rocks bumping into each other and so on and so forth. And so, you know, what we should really be trying to do is we should be trying to explain what's distinctive about that form of process. And I think, you know, when you think that through, you will arrive at the notion of different kinds of explanations and explanatory connections, which seem causal. I mean, they explain why things in the world are happening, but not in the way that these theorists are having it, not in the way that the movement of one rock, you know, that bumps into something explains the movement of that thing or the way the structural features of a physical object explain it's falling down. So it seems like one way we might think about this picture that you're objecting to is in terms of a flow chart that we could draw of an action or something. And so I start and I write down a particular belief on my flow chart and then I have an arrow and maybe that is a rock bumping into something else that gives me an intention and then I have another arrow and that gives me an action and all the way there are these rock bumping kind of causes that get me from one point to another. Is that a reasonable way of looking at it? Yeah, I think that would do. I mean, it's if you think that this is wrong-headed, it, one runs into a problem because if it's wrong, then it's very, very confused. And so it's actually kind of hard to explain what is going on. But I mean, if, if I were given metaphors, I would say that it was as though what we were talking about was something inside people's heads which was pushing on something else which was pushing on something else and that's what it was to act. And so I think your flowchart in, in a way is a nice picture of that. So as you've said, this is going to become a really complicated question. What's, what's wrong with this picture? But maybe we could just get a sense of your alternative picture. I mean, someone mm -hmm. might ask, well, what other kind of explanation is there? I mean, maybe it's complicated to work mm -hmm. out, you know, how all these rocks bump into each other. Maybe there's a lot of rocks that, you know, the mind's a pretty complex thing, so is action. But that's all it's going to be. That's the only kind of explanation available. What other kind of explanation of action can we give? Okay, so let me say a little bit about how I try to analyze collective action. And I think in the course of saying that, I'll also say some things about individual action or solitary action. So what I try to do, and here I'm following some of the work of Elizabeth Anscombe. She, her work was on solitary action, but I'm sort of following her approach in a way. So my effort is to try to identify explanatory features that hold together a collective action and make it one action, that make it something people do together, like the first case with a Swedish diplomat rather than the second case. And so it's, you know, I, I try to provide an account in terms of a sort of novel forms of explanation that apply in the collective case that don't apply to just individual action. So here's what I'm thinking of. Take another case I discuss. Um, a band of robbers is robbing a bank. It's something they're doing together. So suppose there's a man and he's listening at a stethoscope and we can ask, well, why is he doing that? What explains his listening to the stethoscope? Why is he doing that? And suppose the answer is, well, he's cracking the safe. There's a kind of explanation that we find in solitary 
action. So one thing the agent is doing is being explained in terms of another thing the agent is doing. And just notice that in this case, you can also kind of reformulate that in a kind of purposive way. So you can say that he is listening at the stethoscope in order to crack the safe or with a view to cracking the safe for the sake of cracking the safe. Um, so, okay, so far we just have kinds of explanations that structure a solitary action. But now imagine we push the question one further and the point at which I've chosen to do this is arbitrary. I could have done this at any point. But suppose now we say, well, why is he cracking the safe? And suppose now it seems like we could say, well, he's doing that because the band of robbers is robbing the bank. But now here, notice we have something new that we don't have in solitary action because here we have the action of an individual agent being explained by the action that's being undertaken by another agent, a plural agent an agent which he's a part of, of course, but a plural agent. And here, I think, if we have a case of genuine collective action, we will also be able to reformulate it in a purposive way. So why is he cracking the safe? Um, well, he's doing that for the sake of robbing the bank with a view to robbing the bank and so on. So I think, you know, when we have collective action, what we have is um, we have forms of explanation where things individual agents are doing are explained by things plural agents are doing, um, and those explanations are purposive explanations. Now, what is it for people to do something together? Well, you know, now let's just broaden our view from the guy cracking the safe to some other people in the bank. So there's also a gunman who keeps his gun trained on the security guards. Why is he doing that? Well, he's, you know, immobilizing them. Well, why that? Well, because the band is robbing the bank for the sake of robbing the bank. So what makes it the case that the guy with the stethoscope and the guy with the gun are acting together? Well, it's pretty simple, really. It's that both their actions are subject to the same explanation. That is, they're both explainable by what the plural subject in question, namely the band of robbers, is doing. And it's the same kind of purposive explanation in each case. So when people are acting together, all of their actions are subject to the same kind of explanation in this way. I mean, that's basically the picture. So it seems like the big difference here, if we're talking about explanations, is this idea that you've introduced of purposive explanations. Explanations that have reference to purposes that people have, the goals of, of what they do. And maybe we could say that part of what distinguishes you or part of your problem with the earlier view was that it just didn't invoke that kind of explanation at all. So what we were calling the psychologistic picture, that was just these very complex rocks bumping into each other. But at no point in explaining action did we mention anyone's purposes. And you're saying that's a mistake. In fact, to understand action properly, to get a proper explanation of what's going on in action, we need to invoke people's purposes. That's right. And w once we do that, I, I mean, I think another difference, which is part of the same difference, is that when I was talking about the explanatory structures, look what the two things standing in an explanatory relation were to one another. It was one action and another action. And those are two worldly things. But on the other picture, the psychologistic picture, the explanations aren't like that. They're, they're all from the head to something in the world. So I, I think that's another sort of difference. 
What if someone were to object at this point and say, well, well, hang on, so you're explaining what it is for this guy, this safe cracker, to be acting as part of a group. But your account of that is that the explanation of what he's doing with this stethoscope has to be given in terms of what a group is doing. He's using this stethoscope because he's cracking the safe, he's cracking the safe because the group, the band of robbers, is robbing the bank. But what if someone said, well, the idea of the band of robbers is robbing the bank is exactly what we wanted to explain in the first place. So if we were worried that we still didn't understand what that meant, Mm -hmm. we might think that we'd not got anywhere at this point, that you were assuming what we needed to explain. So what would your response to that kind of objection be? There's sort of different motivations you might have for asking that question depending on what motivation it was the answer would need to be different. Here's what I presupposed. I presupposed that a certain kind of explanation is intelligible. That is, that action with a plural subject is intelligible. But I don't think that I've presupposed um, what needs to be understood if what needs to be understood is acting together or a group acting as a group, because what it is for a group to act as a group is for the kinds of explanations that I'm giving to hold. I mean, a way of showing that I haven't presupposed the notion of a group acting is to note that I can distinguish and provide an account of the distinction between plural nouns that are the subject of verbs of action where we don't have a group acting, and plural nouns that are the subject of verbs of action where we do have a group acting. So I can explain that difference. The difference in the first case, we can make all kinds of predications of plural nouns that aren't cases of collective action, like if we're all in a bank for our own separate reasons, we can talk about um, all of us standing around in the bank. Now that's not something we're doing together, but nonetheless we are all standing around. It's true that we're standing around and so on. Now, what differentiates that from a plural agent, if you will, a plural subject of action? I don't presuppose that distinction. I provide the following account of it. I say, what differentiates that from that plural subject from a plural agent, and so from a group that's acting as a group, is that the actions of all the individual people who are just standing around in the bank lack a certain kind of explanatory unity and ground. None of them are doing what they're doing for the sake of something that they're all doing. And so nothing that they're all doing explains what all of them are doing and certainly doesn't explain it in this kind of purpose-involving way. So while I think I, I do presuppose that the you know ascriptions of intentional actions to groups are intelligible because I presuppose a form of explanation to account for that that involves that. I mean, I don't think I presuppose collective action in my explanation. So one way of putting what you're saying, or in a way the contribution that you're making to our understanding of this, is that acting together, as distinct from these cases where we all happen to be standing around in the bank and that's not acting together, Acting together is acting with a common purpose. It's a purpose that we all have together as a group. That seems like a substantial thing to say. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly right. 
questions about group behavior seem to come up a lot in ethical discussions, political discussions. One example that really struck me, fairly recent history, is the Citizens United Supreme Court decision <laughs> where there was all this talk about whether corporations were made up of people or whether they were something over and above people that could do something uh, qua corporation and so on and so forth. So uh, we were just wondering whether the view you put forth that distinguishes group action from individual action on the basis of the kinds of explanations we can give of it, do you see that having any ethical consequences? I do. I think both ethical and political consequences. I think that any time a sort of question about a sort of common problem that we face and we're reasoning about what to do about that problem, I think that a sort of individualistic picture of acting together will cause trouble whenever that comes up. So, for example, if we try to understand Suppose we're talking about democratic theory, and we're trying to understand democratic reasoning, that is reasoning together, addressing common problems that we have. If we insist on modeling that in some complicated way on sort of forms of reasoning that we find in solitary cases, so for example, the kinds of reasoning where a lone agent tries to satisfy his preferences by himself, we try to understand it as a kind of aggregation of that sort of thing, this will produce, I think, substantial distortions because what will go missing is precisely the idea of a shared purpose or a shared reason from which we can genuinely deliberate together. And it will be very hard to recover that notion with some kind of um, elaborate individualistic reconstruction. And we see this sort of distortion all the time in, in reasoning about democratic theory. In ethics, or ethics cum politics maybe, I recently I was thinking about um, some arguments that a philosopher, A.J. Julius at UCLA has given, which I, I, I think are right, right on here. And he, like me, he has a view that acknowledges the reality of shared purposes, shared reasons from which we can deliberate. He argues that we ought to have that picture. And he, he points out that the consequences of rejecting it um, and going with the kind of individualism that I say we shouldn't go with is quite high. Think about cases where some kind of coercion is involved. So think about when coercion is impermissible. It's impermissible for me to coerce you into doing something, I think. So it's impermissible for me to do something that will lead you to do something if you have no good reason to do it on your own. For example, if I say, jump through this hoop or I'll set your pants on fire, this is a case of impermissible coercion because you don't have independently, one of the reasons is you ought not to threaten to set people's pants on fire, but another reason is that you actually don't have any reason at all to jump through the hoop and so I'm basically forcing you to do something that you don't have a reason to do. Contrast that with cases where there's some common problem we face and we need a cooperative scheme to answer it and we want to set up a system of penalties for free riding. Now, is this a case where it's like saying, jump through the hoop or I'll set your pants on fire? Well, if you deny that there are collective reasons, shared reasons that we you know, can reason from that give individuals reasons for action, I think you might be surprised. It might actually turn out that it's all like jump through the hoop or I'll put your pants on fire 
because once we deny that there are these collective reasons, all forms of cooperation that involve what seem to me like necessary and justified, you know, coercive penalties for free riding will actually turn out to be forcing people to do things that they have no reason to do as individuals. So it may be actually surprisingly that rejecting a view that's similar to mine about collective action has the consequence that extreme libertarianism is true, which might be surprising, but really it's actually not that surprising if you think about what we're really talking about, which is you know, people doing things together and sort of um, what the rationale and rationality of that is like. Um, ben Lawrence, thank you very much for joining us. Great. Glad to be here. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.